Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast on the killing of the Iranian Quds General Qasem Soleimani. You'll hear General David Fraser, former NATO commander, Canadian general, also Daniel Pipes, the president of the Middle East Forum, Matthew Fisher, for 30 years foreign correspondent and global news contributor, Dr. Kristen Luprecht from RMC and Queen's University, and Dennis Horak, who was Canada's former senior diplomat in Iran. We're joined by Canadian Major General David Fraser, retired, but he's a former NATO commander in Afghanistan, and uh, he is the president of um, Aegis um, 6 Corporation, and uh, he's the author of uh, Operation Medusa, the furious battle that saved Afghanistan from the Taliban. General Fraser, thank you very much for taking time, and I'm sorry I stumbled there, but, you know, when the computer quits on you, there's you get lost. <laughs> well, listen, it's great to be with you today, unfortunately, under circumstances like what we're about to talk about. It is a difficult time and uh, quite a... Uh, uh, wild start to 2020. What's your assessment of the U.S. military action which took the life of the Atari, I- Iranian general Qasem Soleimani? Well, you know, I was struck by what the president said was the, you know, the reign of terror is over uh, by Soleimani. I, I don't agree with him. I think the reign of terror will carry on as illustrated by the, the rocket attack in the green zone already. Because um, Soleimani has now uh, being raised to the level of a martyr and a national hero. Now, Soleimani, there's probably no one in the Western world who shed a tear that he is gone, but the second most powerful figure behind the Ayatollah Ali Khamenei has been killed by the West and really by the, by the United States, and Iran is uh, intent on revenge for the loss of their uh, loved one. So this this is not over. This is just the beginning of a new chapter of terrorism and killing. There's a lot of speculation as to what that uh, revenge might consist of and who, in fact, may be involved assisting the Iranians if they don't do so directly and uh, where those, uh, you know, where the attacks may be targeted. Would you have some uh, thoughts on what that might be? Well, I think we have to also put into context and recognize that Soleimani was the architect of Tehran's proxy conflicts in the Middle East, including Yemen, Syria, Iraq, and as a result, he has killed thousands of Americans and other international people and innocent people. Uh, he was in Baghdad at the moment that he was killed, uh, working with the Iraqi Popular Mobilization Forces in Baghdad, which is, you know, to the Americans, it must have been right up their nose that he was there. Uh, we put this into context of uh, the 27th of December attack where they killed one contractor, the 31st of December where the protesters were there, very reminiscent of the 80s when the American embassy was taken over. I'm sure the Americans were just absolutely abhorrent about uh, what this guy has done. And uh, Trump playing to, I suspect, his base and being wanting to be decisive and mean different from his predecessors, decided to kill this guy. And, you know, that was kind of the situation and the decision. The question now is, what is uh, Iran going to do? And they will do something, and it will be violent. 
So, you know, what are the options? They have a huge terrorist network now in the region and around the world as the regional powers they have become since the downfall of the Russians and the Syrians. And we should expect probably a broad range of attacks in the forthcoming period. And we're talking about violent attacks, not necessarily just cyber attacks, but actual physical violence that is going to be reported on, and the and the and the vid- the visuals may very well be available to everyone globally. Well, and I think this is where the Ayatollah Khomeini is already giving us a visual where he visited uh, Soleimani's uh, widow in the last couple of days. He will want to do something visually that is going to strike at the heart of the United States. Uh, he won't want to do it from a cyber point of view because there, there's no effect. He wants to do something that's going to be big, that's going to show his people that this martyr will be revenged. So we should expect something that against a U.S. target. Now, the Americans are saying that uh, the drone strike was a defensive measure to stop a planned major attack by Iranian military or their proxies. Do you have any idea what that might be? Well, Again, if we go back and look at what's happened in December alone and going back before that, the attacks in the Strait of Hormuz, uh, the Iranians were certainly using the, the militias in uh, Iraq to their, to their betterment of uh, prosecuting conflict against the United States and, by extension, the, the Western forces. So there certainly were a lot more attacks probably planned. Soleimani was certainly the probably the, the commander behind a lot of these plans or whatnot, so the Americans would know that. So that is one thing. But the decision to kill him, um, whereas Trump's predecessors, Bush and Obama, did not, uh, their question, and as I think all of our questions, as including coming out of the U.N. and, and in Western Europe now, is, is what is Tehran going to do about this? And they're not going to do nothing. They're going to do something. And that something is going to be violent and it's probably just instilled them to do even more than what they've been doing in the past. General Fraser, did Soleimani come into play at all when you were commanding NATO forces in Afghanistan? The short answer is no. I mean, interestingly enough, we dealt with uh, Iranian uh, diplomatic officials when we were in command in the Southern Coalition in Afghanistan. Um, the only thing we dealt with them was on the war against drugs, and to a certain degree, the drug problem in southern Afghanistan was affecting the Iranians as much as it was affecting everyone else, but we didn't deal with them on the military side. It was just simply on the drugs and the impact it had on even on their own society. But they were around, and, and this is the thing. They are everywhere in the Middle East, and we, we've certainly got to recognize that uh, they are a regional power, and they are playing to the extremes of Middle East uh, society uh, to their own uh, to their own objectives, which are not in line with Western objectives. Does this have the potential to spin out of control? Here's a part, a two-part question. Does it have the potential to spin out of control? And did the American action, taking out Soleimani, in any way, uh, will it act or could it act as a deterrent to Iran? Looking at Donald Trump now saying, all right, so he did this. If we do X, he'll do Y. I, I, I think there, there is a degree of lack of controllability of this situation. 
a lot of what Iran has done, they are working with local militias throughout the region which do not report back to Iran. That in itself is worrisome, I would think, from a U.S. point of view, of con- how do you contain the genie in the bottle without breaking the bottle? Mm-hmm. And I think this is in one part why previous presidents have not decided to go after uh, Suleimani uh, because of the potential of controlling the conflict. The second thing is now that you've actually killed essentially the number two guy inside of Iran, uh, you have now solicited a national response back from Iran against the United States. This no longer is a going after proxies. Uh, United States has actually killed one of the leaders of the Iranian regime. And that is a significant escalation of this conflict in a way that, you know, can it be controllable? Um, I think for the short term, it's going to get a lot worse. And in the mid to long term, depending on what the response is by the Americans principally, uh, we'll actually answer that question. Let's go one more question. What military contingencies do you think are in play or are in place as far as the United States are concerned? And can the Americans count on their NATO allies to stand with them in the face of any Iranian action, given the fact that European countries did not participate or did not join the United States in, in their, uh, in their uh, uh, setting aside the nuclear agreement with Iran? Well, I'll start with the, the, the easier of the two questions and the impact on the allies, including Canada. Canada, we're, we're a small player. We have about 200 people in the region, uh, uniformed people. We've got a Canadian leader that's in Iraq doing training. Their security threat just went up significantly. Other allies now are going to be probably collateral uh, targets because Iran now is completely focused on the U.S. So the allies had no decision in this. This was a unilateral decision by the U.S., but they will become collateral you know, damage if this thing gets ugly. The U.S. has probably already considered what the implications of taking Soleimani out, and they are probably getting ready for the response, which it will happen from Tehran. And um, this will probably include even further strikes should that Tehran take, uh, go after American targets. But, but the American posture is going to become a lot more defensive in nature uh, to protect themselves against of what is coming in because Tehran is not going to sit back and do nothing. They're going to do something. Well, I appreciate your time, uh, General Fraser. Thank you very much. Former NATO commander in Afghanistan, principal at AG6.com, and the book is Operation Medusa, The Furious Battle That Saved Afghanistan from the Taliban. Thank you, General Fraser. Boy, thank you very much. With Professor Daniel Pipes, he's a historian, writer, commentator, president of the Middle East Forum, and publisher of its Middle East Quarterly Journal. He's taught at Harvard, Pepperdine, and the U.S. Naval War College. He's written 16 books and was the top distinguished visiting fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Professor Pipes, thank you for taking the time. Were you surprised at what happened? Yes, entirely. It's completely inconsistent with the policy under Donald Trump. So um, one learns, as one follows American foreign policy in the Trump era, to be ready for surprises. You don't know what's coming next. What is your view of the of the killing of uh, of uh, General uh, Soleimani, described by many in uh, in the West as one of the worst terrorists in the world, and uh, described in very flattering and positive terms by obviously uh, the Iranian government and their supporters? 
I'm inclined to think it's less important than most people do. Uh, for the, in the first place, he was an operative. He was not a decision maker. He carried out instructions. He didn't develop those instructions. And he was clearly very competent at it. But operators are not that difficult to find. And there have been prior cases where an operator has been taken out and then someone else replaces him and is about as good or maybe even better. So uh, I don't think it has enormous consequences for Iranian capabilities. That leaves two questions. What are, what are the Iranians going to do? What are the Americans going to do? The Iranians, I expect, are going to do indirect, are going to respond indirectly. Maybe, maybe cyber hacking and other such non um, kinetic forms, non nonviolent forms of response. I think they might well attack Israel and Jewish interests. Um, but I don't think they'll attack Americans. I don't think they want to take on Trump. And then there's the question of what the U.S. will do. And as I suggested in my first reply to you, I have no idea. Is this the beginning of a massive policy change towards Iran? Or is this a one-time shot that will have no particular implications in the future? Nobody knows. Donald Trump is unpredictable. So, in general, I think it's not that uh, important. I, I don't think the Iranians and the Americans are going to war. I'm kind of inclined not to think it's a major change in policy. I don't think it will affect Iranian capabilities that much. A lot has been said about why President Trump decided to act as he did, and one of the positions that's put forward quite regularly is the attack that took place on the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad, and uh, the militia members who supported Soleimani had scribbled or scrawled a graffiti on the guardhouses at the embassy, which read, Soleimani is my leader, and for the Americans, it brought back too many memories of 1979 in Tehran. Could be. Could be. Could be what he had for breakfast. I, I don't know. Donald Trump is unpredictable. I mean, look, in the last couple of months, he opened the door for the Turkish forces to enter Syria and batter our Kurdish allies. He did not respond when the uh, Iranians attacked two major Saudi oil installations. And now this. Uh, I can't explain him. And indeed, from what I've read, his aides were completely surprised. So... It's better just to uh, understand that he's unpredictable, which has its virtues as a you know cowboy um, keeping your opponents on edge. But it also has real disadvantages in that you can't you can't figure out what's what's likely to happen, what the predictable consequences are, what policies there are, and so forth. Strategically, what do you say about then the move that was made by the uh, by the president? When you, when you know that uh, previously we've been told repeatedly that uh, Barack Obama and George W. Bush had opportunities to take out Soleimani, they decided not to, maybe because they were concerned about potential fallout. Uh, strategically, does it make sense? It makes sense strategically if it's followed up. If it's a one-time thing, uh, it doesn't make much difference. But if it is followed up, if this means that after 40 years of the Islamic Republic of Iran, the U.S. government has decided to respond not just economically, but militarily, to Iranian aggression, to Iranian building of nuclear weapons, to Iranian taking over more or less four countries, Yemen, Lebanon, Syria, and Iraq, to uh, Iranian ideological aggression. If, if this means a profound change, then yes, it's big. 
But if it's a one-time killing of an operative, no, not not very significant. So in the short term, yeah. then maybe... I'm sorry, in the short term and then perhaps the medium term, what is the impact, the potential impact in the Middle East? The Jerusalem Post is reporting that Secretary of State Mike Pompeo called regional leaders in the last days before the strike to secure support and firm up uh, strategy, again, according to the Jerusalem Post, and he also warned militias supported by Iran. What do you, and the, uh, the Saudis have expressed concern, which is fairly predictable, I guess. What do you think the shorter and the medium-term reaction or fallout in the Middle East is, is going to be? Well, as I indicated, I think the, uh, the, the, the Iranians will take it out on Israel and Jewish interests, could well mm-hmm. take it out on the Saudis, too. I don't think they'll take it out on Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, there could be, uh, or not take it on Americans, but obliquely, like with the, through the Internet. Uh, there could well be an increase in violence in the Middle East, uh, but there's a lot anyway, and I'm not sure uh, that it'll be enormously different from the way it's been. I mean, this, the Iranians have been on the warpath in four countries. Mm-hmm. And, uh, for example, in Iraq, Soleimani was overseeing the forceful repression of dissidents in Baghdad and other cities. I suspect that will continue. What about inside Iran? We've heard a lot about protests, um, people just terribly unhappy with their with their lives, with the realities of cost of living and just trying to get by, and protesters being shot down, unarmed protesters being shot down by security, or gunned down by security personnel. Do you expect this to change any of the internal dynamics in Iran? That's a good question. Uh, the great majority of Iranians do not like the regime, uh, and they have on occasion, including in 2009 and 2017, and then in the last few months, shown that they don't like their regime. The regime is strong, the regime knows how to handle this, and the regime has repressed them. I would imagine that the great majority of Iranians are not unhappy that a major regime operative has been taken out. But I can also imagine that there's a certain amount of rallying around the flag that people don't like the fact that one of theirs was uh, executed in this fashion. I don't know. I don't know what the Iranian response is. I haven't seen reports from there yet. It'll probably take some time. But probably my guess would be that it's a good thing in terms of encouraging Iranians who are unhappy with the repressive totalitarian regime to stand up against it. Professor Pipes, good talking to you. Thank you so much for the time today. Thank you so much, Roy. Daniel Pipes, professor, historian, president of the Middle East Forum, publisher of its Middle East Quarterly Journal. He's taught at Harvard, Pepperdine, and uh, the U.S. Naval War College. Matthew Fisher joins us on the program. Matthew, 30 years foreign correspondent, Global News online contributor, and you can find him on Twitter at M. Fisher overseas. M. Fisher overseas. So, as you, uh, as your, as your, your commentary is headlined on Global News, Matthew, the 2020s have already begun with a military bang, and they certainly have. Uh, and you write, the U.S. killed the leader of Iran's most elite revolutionary guard unit, the despicable Qasem Soleimani, as well as a leader of Shia militia proxies in Iraq. Iran's certain response to losing its most revered warrior and senior emissary to Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon could trigger a much bigger, unpredictable counter-response. From there, things could spin out of control. Okay, explain, please. Well, I think uh, it's pretty clear they're starting to unravel. We're seeing 
the uh, Iranian uh, uh, threats, uh, as expected, uh, uh, they are promising to go after uh, the Americans and Western targets in, in a very big way, and it won't be a biblical eye for an eye. Uh, they're much more ambitious than that. We still, of course, do not know how these attacks might manifest themselves, but it's like a buffet table. They've got, and it's full, they have about 10 or 15 different things that they could do, Roy, and if you have the patience to listen for a minute, I'll just enumerate a few of them. Sure. Uh, one is Lebanon, Hezbollah, which is very close to them. In fact, it's create uh, a creature uh, of Iran, uh, could uh, unleash attacks uh, on Israel with rockets. It builds up its arsenal every few years. Right now, its arsenal is near an all-time high. So we could see a fantastic barrage against Israel, and then Israel would respond. And the war between uh, Lebanon, or at least between the uh, Shia factions in Lebanon and Israel, would be on again. Move one country to the east, and you've got uh, Bashir al-Assad, uh, he's uh, from a Shia sect. He's totally dependent on uh, Russian and Iranian support, and the Iranian support is much more uh, longstanding. Uh, he could be asked uh, to go out and uh, go after some of the remaining Americans there and groups in Syria that are aligned with the United States. So moving further east into Iraq itself, uh, the largest minority, uh, a very big minority in the country, are uh, Shias. They sit on top of uh, almost all of the oil, and what oil they don't sit on top of, the Kurds sit on top of. They hate the Sunnis. Uh, they could try to get that old civil war going uh, that's, uh, that existed during Saddam's time, but he suppressed it mightily. Uh, and uh, so uh, Iraq uh, could go down the tubes. Then you go further east and south again to all the Gulf states and uh, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Kuwait. Uh, they're all Sunni. They have great issues with uh, uh, Iran. Iran could attack the Saudi refineries again. They did that with some success fairly recently. They have gone after the shipping, uh, the oil tankers and whatnot in the Gulf many times. Uh, from time to time, they try to go up against the American ships, warships there. That usually doesn't turn out very well, but they have newer and more formidable missile uh, uh, that can hit ships, uh, anti-ship missiles. Uh, they also have very formidable radars. Their, their air force is nothing. The Americans will take it apart in a few minutes. And it won't really be a land war, but there could be some uh, fights at sea and in, in the skies. And then the, the biggest one, really, the trump card, is uh, American targets, embassies, soldiers, and countries related to them like Canada. And then terrorism against tourists in the Middle East, workers in the Middle East. This is where Canadians get involved because we've got quite a few oil workers in a number of countries, but especially in Iraq and Canadian oil companies as well as Canadian oil workers, and then terrorism in Europe, and Europe's the soft underbelly, very, very vulnerable, uh, the borders are open, uh, and so all of these different things they can try, plus cyber warfare, they're very good at cyber warfare, 
they may try to cripple Google or, or Hotmail, uh, uh, Facebook, all of these things. Uh, those are sort of the commercial sites, but they'll also go after military sites and uh, industry sites with cyber warfare. Uh, so it's a great range of things that they can do. Uh, they may start slowly. They may start with a big bang. My hunch is the repercussions of this action are going to take a few years, Ryan. Yeah. I have to take a break in about 45 seconds, and you're staying with us, and thank you for that. Let me ask you, though, before we take the break, Matthew, what about the deterrent effect? Now, Trump has said, obviously shown that he's willing to take action. As our previous guest just said, is it a one-time deal, or is Trump really sending a, a determined message? Would there be a deterrent for the, Iraqi, for the, the Iranians, uh, considering what happened in the last 72 hours? I think uh, you could use another term, the opposite of deterrent. It may embolden mm. uh, the Iranians and those Shias in Iraq and Syria and Lebanon uh, to go on even greater offensives and mess up Afghanistan even more, mess up Yemen even more, and uh, Iran is largely responsible for the awful civil war that's taking place there, a proxy war okay. with the Saudis. Let me get you to hold on, Matthew. We'll come back with Matthew Fisher. Twitter is at The Roy Green Show. My guest's Twitter handle is M. Fisher Overseas. M. Fisher Overseas. Matthew Fisher, 30 years, foreign correspondent, one of the very best global news online contributor. And uh, Matthew's column on global news at globalnews.ca, the 2020s have already begun with a military bang. I want to ask you about uh, the, the, the elephant in the room, which you which you get to in the column, and it's important to consider, Matthew. But before we do that, I wonder how surprised the Iranians might have been at the action the Americans took. The embassy had been attacked, and as you point out in the column, it probably brought back a lot of memories of 1979 uh, in Tehran for the Americans. They didn't want to see their graffiti on the guardhouses saying, Soleimani is my leader, plus Soleimani is coming into the uh, into Baghdad a couple of days later, and those Apache helicopters weren't there just to show off. Um, did the attack on the? Do you think the attack on the American embassy precipitated what took place, or was this always going to happen at some point? Well, uh, I've been thinking it's going to happen for ten or twenty years, right? <laughs> and never does. Uh, and so many people have threatened to kill this man, and they never had. That is why I think the Iranians would have been surprised. Osama bin Laden, uh, al-Baghdadi, the Islamic State leader, uh, uh, Mullah Omar, the one-eyed Afghan Taliban leader, uh, they were all taken out. Uh, they were eliminated. But they were freelancers in a way. They, they represented and led uh, independent organizations. But Iran sanctions terrorism as a state. And uh, it confers on people uh, such as Suleimani, the general who just died, uh, a special status because they are a state. And the idea is you don't go around assassinating people in other governments. He was effectively the number two or the vice president uh, of Iran. And you don't do that. That was his protection. So he was awfully brave. He gave TV interviews. You know, bin Laden lived in caves and hid out. Uh, that's not the case with Soleimani. He, he went all over the Middle East stirring trouble, a public figure really in, 
places such as, uh, as Syria and Iraq. Uh, and uh, in Iraq, I'm sure he got off that plane thinking there wasn't any chance, despite the fact the Americans a few hours before it said they were going to get him. Because Trump is famous for huffing and puffing and not doing anything. But Barack Obama said he was going to make the Iranians pay, and they never did either. So uh, it's a very long-winded way of saying I think the Iranians were shocked. I think just about everybody in the Middle East was shocked uh, because the world's number one terrorist, he did a lot more killing, a lot more bad even than bin Laden, uh, seemed to always get off scot-free. Before I ask you about the uh, elephant in the room, China, let me come back to uh, Canadians in the Middle East. Our our military forces are small and no doubt well protected and can take care of themselves if necessary. But there are the uh, the oil workers. There are the civilians in the Middle East. Would you address that, please? Well, that is the thing. I don't think there's been talk the Canadians might be at risk. Uh, I just don't see it myself for the reasons you just mentioned in terms of secure bases and they know how to take uh, care of themselves or they wouldn't be combat soldiers and these are a lot of them are very experienced uh, folks uh, that we have sent there plus on top of that nato uh, has announced uh, uh, today or late last night that it was suspending temporarily the canadian-led mission training mission in iraq well they get a sense of the new lay of the land and they will withdraw it i think if the americans uh, leave their embassy in Baghdad. But the larger question you ask is about Canadians or Westerners generally in the Middle East. There are Canadian oil workers in Iraq. I've met them myself. Uh, I spent quite a few years in Iraq. Uh, and there are Canadian oil companies there. More of them are in the Kurdish areas in the north, but they're spread out all over the place. They're very vulnerable. They have security guards with them, but uh, that's like nothing compared to highly motivated uh, Shia militias. So that's a problem. Then there are tourists, and Canadians like to go, for example, to Dubai. Dubai, the United Arab Emirates government, uh, is strongly opposed to Iran uh, and uh, subject to terrorist attacks and and missiles being launched across the Persian Gulf, Canadians could get harmed that way. Also, Canadians could get harmed in Europe. Anybody could, because I think it's very likely, whether it's a month from now or six months from now, that there are going to be major terrorist attacks probably carried out on Iran's behalf by Hezbollah, which specializes in this kind of thing. And so there are risks to Canadians galore, uh, not huge ones, because Canada doesn't have huge numbers of people, tourists or anything else, in the Middle East. But uh, it's a caution. And uh, I, for example, uh, would not be going there unless I knew exactly what I was doing and what my own security arrangements were. And uh, frankly, most tourists who go to these places are oblivious to it. I got an email yesterday, Roy, and a, a woman uh, from Canada who's in Dubai said, she thought it was all nonsense. She'd spent the day uh, at the beach and then went to the mall and done shopping. And she said, there's no risk here. Well, there isn't a risk until you get whacked. That's yeah. what happened. Yeah, that's a very concerning situation, very concerning for Canadians who are on the ground and, and open your eyes and open your ears to what's going on. Matthew, on, uh, on, on the column, you also um, you write, uh, it may not seem like it at the moment, but a more ominous question for the decade ahead, 
is whether it is during the year of the rat that the U.S. and China finally go from sparring verbally with each other to striking blows in what will be a long battle for control of the oceans of the Indo-Pacific. And you're right, Canada has a lot at stake in the growing dispute between the U.S. and China or the South China Seas, uh, and especially in how to respond if Beijing crosses that sea and attacks democratic Taiwan. What are we looking at? That's the dog's breakfast. and This all plays what's happening in the Middle East to China's advantage because it will divert American resources and attention once again to the Middle East after those long wars, the forever wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. The U.S. has just been trying to extricate it from uh, itself from these areas. Now it's back in them. For Canada, uh, also, it, it uh, means that we can use the excuse, our government, uh, that uh, the world's watching the Middle East so we don't have to act on China. Canada is regarded by just about every other country that I know of as the weakest Western link when it comes to China. China has kidnapped Canadian citizens. It's called us a nation of racists. It's used over-the-top rhetoric uh, about Canada, and we've had absolutely no pushback. In fact, we sent tourism ministers and, uh, and trade delegations to, at the same time as they've kidnapped and are holding our people to try to do trade deals with them. Well, this will take some of the heat that the Liberal government has been experiencing lately off them, I think, uh, because uh, Canadian attention, everybody's attention is going to be on the Middle East for a while. So that, is, in a way, is, a, 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 to me, a perverted advantage of this for the Canadian government, but it's also an advantage for China. China is going crazy and building warships, uh, it's uh, put more than 20 new warships to, year, uh, to sea this year. You know, Canada can't put a warship to sea once every 25 years. Here, uh, uh, China in a year has built more warships than Canada has in its uh, fleet, uh, and all of our ships are many, many years old. Uh, that's one example of many of the, what they're doing. They have hypersonic missiles. Uh, they're building aircraft carriers. They've got our, uh, icebreakers. They say they're in Arctic power. There's been virtually no Canadian response about that. And uh, Canada, uh, although Taiwan's a democracy, we treat Taiwan rather shabbily. We trade with it, but we, uh, we don't uh, say anything about ever protecting it. And meanwhile, China is denigrating the Uyghur minority, the Muslim minority there in Tibet. And these are examples of what they would do in terms of establishing re-education camps for the entire island of Taiwan. And it has what, 20, 25 million people. Uh, and uh, so, and this year, they're pushing out more ships. The Americans uh, are trying to counter them with their own naval operations in the Western Pacific. And I worry about an uh, accident triggering something. Not the Third World War yet. If there's going to be a Third World War, I think it will be between China and the U.S., but that's still 10 or 15 years off. But there can be miscalculations way before that mm -hmm. with ships or warplanes in right. the air not understanding each other, uh, flying close together, and you get accidents that then uh, raise global tensions. Right. That's the kind of thing I think we may see in the year of the rat. 
Matthew, I really appreciate you coming on the show and talking to us about the developments. Uh, the ones, obviously, in, in Iraq with the uh, killing of uh, Soleimani. Also, the the bigger, more threatening in the overall picture of things, uh, China. I'm just thinking as you were talking, uh, Canada puts one ship in the water, and it's a supply ship for the Navy, and that results in the second-in-command of the armed forces uh, being uh, Admiral Mark Norman being dragged through the mud, dragged into almost into a criminal court, and, uh, and, and, and the ship's a success, but they mess up the life of Admiral Mark Norman. Matthew, great talking to you. Thank you so much for the time. Happy New Year to you. Uh, Happy New Year to you, too, and thank you for your time. Now, uh, our guest is Professor Christian Luprecht, professor at the Royal Military College and Queen's University, Monk Senior Fellow at Macdonald-Laurier Institute. He's also Fulbright Research Chair in Canada-U.S. Relations at uh, Johns Hopkins University School for Advanced International Studies. Christian, good to have you with us, and uh, I, I found a very interesting uh, something that you included in an email to me. If I'm understanding this correctly, you, you believe the Americans signaled their intent to take action before they did, and something the Iranians could have been aware of or should have been aware of. Yeah, so you'll remember that uh, after the quasi-attempted raids on the U.S. embassy, we had Apache helicopters that were circling overhead the Iranian embassy for about a day and a half. And there was really, the, I mean, the Apache helicopter is not really a primarily an intelligence vehicle. They're really an attack helicopter. And so I think the, they were signaling to the Iranians that they knew that General Soleimani was coming to town um, and that they intended to take him out and to give them a chance to rethink uh, what they're up to in Iraq. And the Iranians either um, figured that the Americans weren't going to make good on that threat, or they were willing to take that chance and the consequences that might follow uh, in terms of uh, aggravating the confrontation with the United States. A lot has been said about the fact that the uh, militia supporting uh, Iran, and uh, I suppose under the direct control of Soleimani, um, eventually, at some point, he would be their direct commander, uh, were attacking the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad, had in fact uh, uh, wrote, written graffiti on the guardhouses, Soleimani is our leader, and for the Americans that was probably a reminder of Tehran 1979, and you make a, a, a direct link to Tehran 1979 and what's, what's going on in the former U.S. Embassy there now. Sure, I mean, the headquarters of the Al-Quds Force, so the force of about 5,000 or so um, uh, armed, uh, uh, highly trained individuals that uh, General Soleimani commanded um, is in the uh, former uh, U.S. Embassy, located in the former U.S. Embassy in Tehran. Um, and so I think the Americans could see uh, that this was very symbolic, that this raid on the American Embassy in Iraq, um, really, I think the Iranians figured one of two things was uh, going to happen, that either the raid was going to succeed and they're going to have a repeat of 1979 and are able to walk away, uh, in their view, victorious, or if it was going to fail, it was going to fail because the Marines were going to pull out their submarine, sh- uh, their sub-automatic machine guns and were going to kill dozens of people, in which case they were going to have riots in the streets uh, of, uh, of Iraq uh, and chant everybody, everywhere in Iraq for the Americans out of Iraq. So either way, I think the Iranians figured uh, they had nothing to lose and everything to gain. They didn't expect that the Americans were going to be prepared, were going to show restraint, 
but then also use the Apache helicopters to signal to everyone who came out. And of course, these are not voluntary protesters. These are all people who are being paid to be there. Um, once they brought out the helicopters, I think it became clear to everybody on the ground that either everybody's going to go home or everybody on that parade square is going to die. Uh, and I think that's then when we saw that the, uh, the protests, uh, um, the protesters dispersed. What are you looking for in the next days and weeks to make clear what the Iranian response is going to be? And of course, they have troubles of their own at home domestically on the streets of their cities. So this is why I think the U.S. gaming and the U.S. would have gamed out what the possible consequences of this sort of strike are, and they would have presented those to the president before he made this decision. Um, I think the U.S. is figuring that Iran is sufficiently weak, and with the protests that they had already seen in the streets, um, that Iran cannot afford to get into a major conflagration here with the United States because they simply don't have the resources. It would mean diverting even more resources from the Iranian population, and that would likely stoke uh, more protests in the streets. But I think what this ultimately then comes down to is uh, it's a test for both sides. On the one hand, it's a test uh, for both the resolve and the existential resilience of the Iranian regime, because they're going to have, for the sake of credibility, they will have to respond somehow asymmetrically. Um, but I think the, the Americans are signaling if we're willing to take out essentially uh, the grand strategists uh, of Iran in the region, then perhaps Khamenei or any other senior member of the Iranian leadership could be next if the uh, Iranians strike too hard. But it's also a test for the Americans. I think it's a test of whether America really is a superpower or not. Is America going to assert, Let me get you, able to assert its interests? Let me get you to hold that thought for a moment. We'll continue with Professor Christian Luprecht when we come back. We're talking with uh, Professor Christian Luprecht, professor at the Royal Military College and Queen's University, Monk Senior Fellow at the MacDonald Laurier Institute, and Fulbright Research Chair in Canada-U.S. Relations at Johns Hopkins University School for Advanced International Studies. We're speaking with Professor Luprecht about the situation, the ongoing situation, the developing situation between the United States and Iran as American forces uh, killed uh, Qasem Soleimani, the uh, general, the Iranian general in charge of their uh, their Quds forces. Now, we're going to finish with uh, Dr. Luprecht on the Iran-U.S. issue, and then we're going to talk to him about what's going on in Australia with those wildfires, and we'll do that in just a moment. Christian, you were just uh, finishing a thought on... Uh, on, on Iran, what is possible response is going to be, and I point, I mentioned, and, and this is something that we're not hearing nearly enough about, but that's the uh, the the, pop, the the popular uprising that's taking place in a, in Iranian cities, and some uh, unarmed demonstrators have been gunned down by security forces. They're they're facing their own problems internally. Yeah, I, th- I mean, one of the challenges with the sanctions has been is that the population has gotten very disenchanted because it substantially lowered their quality of life. And many of the young Iranians are simply not on board with the ideals of the Iranian revolution. Um, and so there is, I think, a real rift in terms of the legitimacy and support for the regime. And the regime knows this. And so um, it's essentially if it starts a conflagration, major conflagration with the U.S., um, it would be fighting a two-front war, both domestically and abroad. Um, and, but at the same time, it needs to keep on building up America as the demon, so kind of as the Iranian struggle against uh, the demon and the bully sort of in the region. And this is sort of why this uh, picture of your uh, enemy, this construct of America as the enemy of Iran, is uh, it's so vital to, uh, to, keeping, uh, to keeping the Iranian regime 
uh, in power where it currently is. But at the same time, I mean, the Americans, the Trump strategy is to get out of the Middle East. Uh, the Americans already have two thirds of the assets they have deployed abroad in the Asia Pacific region. The Middle East is a sideshow as far as uh, American grand strategy, at least from the perspective of the Trump administration is concerned. And so the Iranians know that Trump wants to bring the troops home. And so I think what we see is a carrot and a stick approach. Uh, On the one hand here, we'll take out your most senior general in terms of orchestrating your grand strategy. Uh, At the same time, look, uh, Trump's on record as saying he wants a deal with the Iranians. He just wants a different deal and, in his view, a better deal. Uh, So maybe there's an opportunity not to let this crisis go to waste and for the Iranians uh, perhaps to sit down with the Americans. And I think that's sort of the essence of the tweet that Donald J. Trump, so his son, uh, sent out yesterday. Are you expecting a final question on this issue for today, or at least this segment with you? Are you expecting the Iranians to do something that is going to fill uh, every inch of television screens around the world in the short term to to make a, 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 a you know really spectacular statement in response to the U.S. action? Well, it might come either asymmetrically, where it can't be attributed directly to Iran and the Iranians can wash their hands, even something as overt as, for instance, as we saw in Saudi Arabia, so attacking one of the U.S. partners, but not attacking the U.S. directly. Um, So I think Saudi oil installations, for instance, at the forefront of this. I mean, the most overt thing the Iran could do is try to close the Strait of Hormuz, for instance, by hijacking a couple of oil tankers or trying to sink them. Uh, but they know that would be a, that would lead to a major confrontation with uh, um, uh, w- with Iran. Uh, the other option, of course, that they have is use the Hezbollah militia in Syria and in Lebanon to rain down missiles on Israel. And it's estimated that Hezbollah in an hour could rain down as many as 15,000 missiles on uh, on Israel, which the Iron Dome would not be able to defend against. It can do tens, maybe hundreds of missiles at a time. It can do thousands of missiles at a time. So uh, this is, I think, why um, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, returned home and cut short his visit abroad because he knew that Israel is now on the front line. We, of course, the whole world is watching and waiting and anticipating what may happen in the days and weeks and months to come. Let's talk about the uh, the other issue that you're with us about today, and I appreciate you doing this. I want to point out as well, not only are you a professor at Royal Military College and Queen's University, but you're also an adjunct research professor at Charles Stewart University's Australian Graduate School for Security and Policing, and uh, that is located in Sydney, in New South Wales. And that, as I understand it, New South Wales is the area of Australia where the wildfires are particularly uh, troublesome, dominating, causing uh, chaos. So uh, let me ask you f- to give us a, an idea of, uh, of how much of Australia is affected by the wildfires and are major population centers in danger. So, uh, look, the, the fires alone, the amount of space that is burning in New South Wales is seven times the size of what the fourth McMurray fire was at the height of that particular fire. So it is a huge, uh, it is a huge fire and it is, it has, it's it spread across multiple spots. And of course, this is also a drought for Australia. So it means that when the fires are burning, there's not like there's a lot of water to go to as there would have been for, for instance, Fort McMurray. And this is sort of what's aggravating the situation that everything you have to fight with, you have to essentially bring in and, in rural Australia, um, the building codes require you to have uh, uh, very large water tanks on your property that the fire department can tap in case of bushfires or wildfires. But these are, of course, uh, long drains. And so uh, this is partially what led to this massive spread of, uh, of the fires. 
Um, and uh, I mean, if you add to that the amount of area that's burning also in Queensland, uh, in uh, Victoria and in the state of uh, South Australia, you're looking at a, at a total fire um, of uh, 10 times the size of the Fort McMurray fire. I mean, these are absolutely fantastic uh, spaces that are in many cases uh, uh, quite remote. But it's also, of course, a problem if you think about, for instance, your car. If you drive through or near these types of fires, it gets so hot, it sucks up all your oxygen. So then your engine dies, and that then also puts people in danger. So it requires a lot of expertise to try to fight these fires uh, without putting uh, the people who are at the front line uh, at unnecessary risk. And we're seeing video of these fires, obviously, and people escaping or trying to escape on rivers and by sea. Uh, How much worse might this become? Because they're just at the beginning of the hot season in Australia, are they not? Well, there's, um, I mean, at least three more months left in the normal fire season. So uh, it's not like we are seeing here the peak and we can expect this to... uh, uh, to decline in the coming days or uh, or weeks. I think this is really uh, why Australia is now uh, massively ramping up the effort because uh, they've, they've drained the regular civilian resources. I mean, you can't work people 24-7. Uh, if you can imagine, I mean, it's the middle of the summer and you're trying to fight fire uh, in heat that in and of itself in the daytime is over 40 degrees in the burnt, uh, in the burning sun. Uh, this is an extremely onerous and difficult task. And uh, uh, just to see like what resources the Australians are deploying, they've now commandeered their single largest uh, ship uh, to evacuate people. And that gives you an idea of how many people need to be evacuated um, and how difficult those evacuations are. So this is all hands on deck. And uh, uh, I hope uh, that uh, our government has reached out to Australia, one of our closest and most important partners and allies, Um, and try to see what it is that uh, the federal and provincial governments can do beyond the people who have already volunteered uh, to assist uh, the Canadian firefighters that are assisting with uh, um, uh, in the command and control centers uh, of planning and coordination and execution uh, of the firefighting strategies. But Canadians are not on the immediate front line of fighting those fires at present, as far as I know. And there is a very special relationship between Canada and Australia, a very special relationship, which you encounter and you experience when, you, when you're there several times a year, I'm sure. Uh, yes, and I mean, Australians really think of, I think, Canadians as, uh, as cousins. And uh, uh, my friend and colleague, Professor John Blacksland at Australian National University, wrote a book, a very good book, exactly by that title, uh, Canada-Australia Strategic Cousins. Um, we have a long-standing, they're one of our closest intelligence partners, they're one of our closest security partners, um, uh, and they're, uh, they're an important force multiplier for Canadian interests in the Asia-Pacific region, where, of course, uh, we don't have the resources that we should have because we've focused many of our resources on, uh, on Europe and elsewhere in the world. Uh, and so Australia has repeatedly come to our aid uh, when Canadian interests have been at stake in the region, and so that I hope that uh, uh, Canada can see what it is that we could do as Canadians and as a Canadian federal government uh, to assist Australians um, over the coming months, because I think the expectation is this is likely going to get uh, worse and possibly considerably worse before it gets better. You can also imagine this is going to have a huge impact on the Australian federal budget 
um, many of the people who are losing their uh, um, their 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 cattle stations, for instance, their ranches, their farms, their wineries in South Australia, um, all the natural uh, the vines that have burned, for instance, are not insurable. People are putting up their personal collections of uh, of wine in order to rebuild their wineries. This is there's there's very serious humanitarian and family tragedies here, uh, where hope as Canadians we can uh, uh, we can support Australia mm-hmm. in effectively uh, rebuilding significant parts of the country after this disaster. Absolutely. Before I take a break, is there a projection as to how much damage these fires by the time they're done, by the fine time they're either put out or burned out? Uh, how much damage they will have done, how much area they will have consumed? So, look, I haven't seen a projection. The challenge is going to be that, just like in Canada, significant areas of the country are becoming uninsurable due to floods or prospective flooding, um, or you're, you're paying insurance rates that are, uh, that are simply no longer affordable for individuals. In Australia, it's going to mean that in many parts of the country, uh, you're not going to be able to get uh, insurance or only at exorbitant prices. Uh, for your uh, for your farm, um, especially in uh, in rural areas, um, and so I think we uh, we will need to rethink in an area where we in a time when we have significant uh, uh, climate change that uh, that we are contending with, uh, what the role of government needs to be in order to make sure that people can maintain their livelihoods, in particular in rural areas, uh, where in many cases they are disproportionately affected. Um, by the extremes of the weather that uh, uh, that we're seeing, and so uh, um, uh, the that's going to be the real, I think, fallout in the medium and long term. Let me disasters. let me take a quick break. We'll come back with Dr. Christian Luprecht. Back to Dr. Christian Luprecht. He's my guest. We're talking about. Uh, well, we talked to him first about the crisis situation between uh, Iran and the United States now, and what that may entail going forward. And uh, but now we're talking about another massive crisis that the world is aware of, very much aware of, and that is the wildfires in Australia. And Professor Luprecht, very familiar with the area in New South Wales where the fires are taking place. He's a professor there. He's also, by the way, the author of Public Security in Federal Politics. I have no idea how you find There must be a clone of Christian Luprecht somewhere because you're everywhere at the same time doing all sorts of things. You're an amazing person. I have to say that. I know you're not going to respond to that, but I'm I'm, going to make the point. Now, (laughs) on the issue of the fires, you have said, and again, we exchange emails, um, and and you've pointed out to me that these fires, this type of fire situation, is coming to Canada, but you've made the point as well that we're not as well prepared as we should be, and we're certainly not as well prepared as the Australians are. Would you expand on that a bit? Yeah, so the Australians had the experience in both world wars of feeling abandoned by their allies and were one uh, battle away, the Battle of the Coral Sea, from essentially being invaded by Japan. And so Australia has always had a mindset that when push comes to shove, we may need to defend the country and at the same time contend with the sort of crises that Australia is, is currently facing, for instance, with the bushfires. Uh, and so Australia has a very sophisticated network of uh, state emergency services uh, that are a small number of full-time employees and thousands of volunteers with both general and technical expertise. They also work very closely with municipalities uh, to prepare for disasters. They have a significant lessons learned capacity after disasters to make sure that municipalities um, adapt the lessons learned. Uh, and they have relatively strict building codes. So, for instance, the very large water tanks that uh, uh, every resident in uh, rural Australia needs to have uh, precisely to be able to fight fires in an area where there just isn't a lot of water uh, at the best of times. 
Uh, we see the same in Europe in terms of these technical support services that uh, most European countries have. The Swedes recently returned to their total defense concept, which is also the same idea that uh, we need a resilient civil society that can look after itself uh, in, in time of, uh, of a national crisis where defense forces may otherwise be tied up. Uh, and in many cases, this is something that we lack in Canada. While the provinces have emergency measures organizations, we don't have the ability to ramp up volunteers uh, and technical expertise in the way that European allies and Australia is able to. And we rely disproportionately on the Canadian armed forces uh, to do the heavy lifting for us. But of course, as we all know, the world is an increasingly challenging place. Um, and using Kenya Armed Forces is also the single most expensive um, approach uh, to dealing with these disasters. And so I think we need to think more systematically about as we get more challenged by extreme weather events um, and uh, possibly also man-made, uh, uh, man-made challenges to our defense, uh, security and resilience of our society, uh, that as a society we need to become better at um, building and harnessing uh, the volunteerism um, and the expertise that we have in Canada to be the frontline support during these disasters and call on the Canadian Armed Forces only when, only for that type of support that absolutely um, it cannot be delivered and only once all really civilian uh, capacities have been exhausted, as is now the case in Australia. Um, and so I think that this would be both... Uh, um, in terms of uh, in, in terms of a, a more optimal allocation of the resources that we have, um, a better approach uh, both for the government and for Canadians. Not that the Canadian Armed Forces don't want to do this particular type of work, uh, but the fact is simply that we can see, and one of the lessons from both Canada and Australia is um, that the Armed Forces um, and our emergency services are simply stretched too thin with all the demands that we are placing on them with the budget that we currently have. And so I think uh, better civilian capacity would go a long way here. Always a pleasure to speak with you, uh, Dr. Christian Luprecht. Thank you so much for the time. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Dr. Christian Luprecht from Royal Military College, Queen's University, and the uh, University in Australia. Um, Charles Stewart University, the Australian Graduate School for Security and Policing in Sydney, New South Wales, where those uh, wildfires are particularly located. Dennis Horak is a Canadian diplomat. He was chief of mission to Iran from 2009 to 2012, also the former Canadian ambassador to Saudi Arabia. He joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Ambassador Horak, thank you very much for the time. And are you surprised at the U.S. action? And how much of a game changer is this going to be potentially in the already confrontational reality between Tehran and Washington? Uh, good afternoon, first of all. Yeah, I, I think everyone was surprised. There, we, we've seen these sort of tit-for-tat uh, threats, counter-threats, over the course, frankly, of, of, of decades, but particularly in the last uh, several months. And for the U.S. to hit as high within the leadership structures of Iran, as they think, uh, took everyone off guard. I think the the U.S. Uh, the attacks, the direct attacks on U.S. assets in the region, the killing of the contractor. Can you hear me? We can hear you again now. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, so I think they were the, the U.S. Uh, reacted the way they did because 
the direct assets, the, the killing of the contractor, the attack on the embassy. I think uh, the U.S. had had enough and wanted to say to send a signal. Look, this is uh, we're we're serious now. So it, I think it, whether it's a game changer, I think uh, remains to be seen. It depends how the Iranians are going to assess this. What they they're going to respond in some manner, and it's a question of uh, how they choose to respond. Uh, the message that the uh, Americans were sending was clear. Look, uh, you attack our assets, uh, we're going to react in a very strong way. And so I think that if, they, uh, if the Iranians choose to, to do that again, as, as they did in Iraq previously, I think we'll see some sort of, uh, again, uh, strong response from the U.S. So it's all sort of in the Iranian court at this point. In an op-ed piece that you wrote for the Globe and Mail, you, uh, you point out that uh, the Iranians will, will also have no shortage of allies, quoting you, of allies in Iraq and elsewhere willing to lend a hand in, uh, in, in any retributive moves. Uh, is this going to significantly affect the dynamic in, in the Middle East, which is difficult to predict at any time. Yeah, it's a, it's a very unpredictable region. Um, they will have allies. There are there are militias, there are proxy forces in Lebanon, in Iraq, in Syria, to a degree, in Yemen as well. Uh, they probably have allies, well, they have allies, you know, sort of less organized groups elsewhere. Uh, and if the, if the Iranians want to unleash them, then it can create problems across the region. Others may react, certainly in Iraq, I think we'll see they will not necessarily need uh, need direction from Iran, as well as well others. So it will depend on, I think, how Iran uh, decides to use these forces. But they do have capabilities uh, through these proxy forces and 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 various other militias around. So it is it's certainly risky. They've been there. They've caused trouble before. They they probably will again, and they may in response to this. Does Canada have a role to play at all? Not really. Um, we're we have no relationship with Iran. Uh, we have a very weakened relationship uh, with Saudi Arabia. This is this is a game in any case that would be sort of above our station in some respects. It's a, it's a big power game in some ways. We're not big players in the Gulf, even if we were we were fully manned in the Gulf. I don't think that we, likewise with with uh, other European allies, I don't think we would have a huge role to play. But what we do lack at this point is certainly in Iran, as we 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 lack visibility on what's happening in the streets because we're not there, and in Saudi, which is which is a player one way or another in all of these issues, we have a weakened presence. So um, the, the biggest implication for Canada, I think, at this stage is obviously we have the 500 uh, troops in, in Iraq doing training, a training mission there, and, and you know measures are being taken to try and uh, secure them. Force protection is key. But we also have tens of thousands of Canadians in the region. Uh, and if this thing were to to really escalate and and uh, spread across the region, we, we would have uh, Canada would have a very large uh, uh, consular challenge ahead of us. What about domestic politics in the United States? You already have Democratic leaders challenging the president, and it's a presidential year. Uh, your career diplomat, how do you assess that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's inevitable, especially in a in a, uh, in a highly charged political atmosphere, as we see in Washington recently. And you know, I've, I've seen some some reports, some assessments that look, this is a wag the dog kind of situation that, uh, that Trump is trying to change the channel uh, from impeachment. I'm I'm not sure I buy that. Uh, I think that uh, the the catalyst for this, as I was saying earlier, uh, were the attacks on uh, direct attacks on American assets. 
Um, but it is a different sort of an approach, and, and it's always going to be, uh, with Trump especially, I think there's going to be this assessment that he's he's doing this for, for political reasons, and, and, and you know, maybe that is a calculation, I, but I, 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 I think it, it runs the risk of going both ways. I don't think Trump wants to go into the election as a wartime president being engaged in a war, so that could counterbalance uh, whatever sort of political uh, benefits he thought he can get from this. But Washington is Washington. The Democrats and Republicans are always going to fight over these things. But I don't think politics really was a driver here. Ambassador Horak, thank you very much for the time. Great talking to you. Appreciate thank it. Thank you. Dennis Horak is the former Canadian lead diplomat in Iran and the Canadian, former Canadian ambassador to Saudi Arabia. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.